Luke 4, 31 to 44. Let me again briefly pray for us as we come to the ministry of God's word this morning. Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak a clear and powerful word to us this morning. We pray that you would do as you have promised, that you would remember your covenant promises, the mercy that you swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you would show us all the riches of the fulfillment of your promises in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us to hear the voice of the Son of God as of the great prophet of the church, the king and the head of the church, and the priest, whoever lives to intercede for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do a great work, that you would increase our faith, that you would humble us, that you would give us a greater hatred for sin and a greater astonishment of all that we have in you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Luke 4, beginning in verse 31. Remember, Jesus has most recently been in his hometown synagogue. He has been rejected by those neighbors that he grew up around after preaching his first sermon there in his hometown. And now Luke records for us the following words. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. Now that word can also be translated power, probably better translated power. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried aloud with a, a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him, and reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that you may not know about the Reformation is that in addition to the Reformation being a preaching movement by which God tore down, as it were, the strongholds of Satan through the preaching of the word through many, many hundreds of reformers, the Reformation was also a a reclaiming of singing in the church. It was Martin Luther who, uh, I'm not sure if you knew this as well, that wrote 36 great hymns. The most well-known of those hymns is A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Now, it's not altogether clear when Luther wrote A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It seems the best evidence that we have seems to say that he had written both the words and the tune sometime by October 1527, 10 years after the Reformation. And, and that hymn in particular became so significant uh, 
especially in Germany. That hymn became such a a strong and powerful hymn that it is said by one historian that that hymn was sung all over Augsburg during the Diet of Worms in all the churches of Saxony over against all the protests of the priest. It was sung in the streets. It was heard, comforted, and, and, and sung and comforted the hearts of Melanchthon, Jonas, and Cruciger as they entered Weimar and were banished from Wittenberg in 1547. Think about that. Luther's disciple, Melanchthon, singing, A mighty fortress is our God while he is being banished out of the city in which God had done such a great and mighty work. And then this one historian goes on to say that that particular hymn was sung by poor Protestant immigrants on their way into exile by martyrs at their death. It is woven into the web of the history of Reformation times. It became the true national hymn of Protestant Germany. Now, there is a reason why we love that hymn. We love that hymn when we sing it because it has such majestic words to it. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And there is, there is a rich spiritual uh, power to the words of that hymn. And you'll remember where Luther says, For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. And yet, Luther would say, one little word will fell him. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Luther realized, as a man who was keenly aware of not just political and ecclesiastical forces that were against him, were against his translating the Bible into German, his, his work of preaching the gospel, justification by faith alone, the free grace of God for salvation. As Luther was laying down his life, as he was hiding in castles, as Frederick was hiding him away, and the other princes of Germany were hiding him away, Luther was keenly aware of the attacks of the evil one. That's one of the the missing ingredients in our day, in our sophisticated society where we are so much more scientifically and technologically advanced than any other society in human history, we, we like to think that we're beyond the supernatural, as it were. We like to think that there are not uh, uh, forces of darkness, a prince of darkness grim, working against what God is doing through his people in the church. And yet Luther drew great confidence in the fact that all the Lord Jesus had to do was speak one little word, and it would pull down all the forces of darkness that were raging against that great work of reformation and the reclamation of the gospel and the grace of God for the salvation of men and women. Now, I think that Martin Luther was drawing off of a passage like we have here before us in Luke 4, 31 to 44. Here we have the Lord Jesus. He is now being uh, out of the temptation of the evil one and coming out of uh, that first sermon that he preaches in Nazareth. He is coming again to do what he came to do. Jesus, Luke will tell us, came to preach the good news. He is the good news. He is the gospel. Jesus came to proclaim the kingdom of God. He came to say that the kingdom of God had broken into time and space, that now in the fullness of time, everything that God had ever spoken was now being fulfilled, and that now that he was here as the Christ and the Redeemer, that everything God had ever promised to do was happening, and that in himself he was embodying everything necessary 
for the salvation of his people. And notice that Luke tells us here from Jesus' own lips at the end of this section in verse 43 that Jesus told the people, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And sometimes we forget that Jesus was a preacher. We overlook the fact that the way God advances his kingdom is through the preaching of Christ crucified exclusively. That is how God advances his kingdom. And that is exclusively the case so much so that even Jesus himself, who is the epicenter of the message, came preaching. Think of that. When the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that it's through the foolishness of the message preached that God has determined that he will save those who will believe, that that is also true for the Savior himself, who is the one that we preach. And so this morning we want to consider how Jesus' power and the manifestation of the kingdom of God is, is coming to full fruition here, even as he goes in on that old covenant Sabbath to preach In the synagogue in Capernaum, we're going to see first his power in the preaching of the gospel, secondly, his power in casting out demons, and then third, his power to heal. Now, notice that Jesus is not sidetracked. They have just tried to kill him. They have tried to throw the Son of God over a cliff. He has walked through their midst. And and conceivably, you 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 could think Jesus is probably discouraged. I would be discouraged if you tried to throw me over a cliff, drown me in the marsh, and I made it out, I would be discouraged. I would be tempted to say, I'm not doing this anymore. Jesus, however, has a mission that he has come from eternity on, and he is steadfast in that mission. Jesus doesn't waver. He is not moved by the opposition, the rejection of his people. He is not sidetracked from what he came to do. He goes from the synagogue in Nazareth now to the synagogue in Capernaum. There is going to be a completely different outcome and response than that which he just received the week before preaching in that church in Nazareth. He is going to astonish the people with his power. He is going to exhibit this great power, but notice Jesus goes and he teaches on the Sabbath. Now, very interesting. Uh, If you looked at the substructure of uh, Luke chapter 4 and the introduction of Jesus' ministry, it is happening on the Lord's Day. Every seventh day, Luke is highlighting what Jesus is doing next. He is, in that sense, showing that the corporate worship of God's people and the preaching of his word in the corporate worship of his people on the Lord's Day is the centerpiece, that that is how the kingdom of God is most fully manifested. Isn't that interesting? It's not in the private conversations. Jesus is going to have lots of conversations with individuals. In this gospel, Luke is going to show us cameos of people who Jesus is sitting with and he's eating with and he's in their homes and uh, sinful women are weeping at his feet and he is in intimate places with his disciples and all of those things matter. But here at the outset of the gospel, what Luke is telling us is that Jesus teaches us what matters the most. The place where God has promised to bless the most is in the ministry of the church. You know, I've this week was just thinking about the privileges I've had by God's grace, undeserved privileges I've had um, to travel, to speak, to write. Um, None of those things in any way come close to the privilege it is to minister in a local church. Um, No conferences, no parachurch ministries, 
no writing privileges, none of that rivals the privilege it is for me to preach and pastor in a local church for us to worship together in a local church. Nothing rivals that. Of all the places on the face of the earth, God has said, I am going to put all of my blessing in the local church, all under the ministry of the word, all as my son is glorified, all in the means that he has appointed as my people gather to worship me. If you want to know the place where God's blessing resides, it is in the local church and the local church alone. Jesus is going Lord's Day by Lord's Day into regional local churches, and he is doing that main thing. He is preaching the word. And notice, notice verse 32, Luke says, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Now, there are two ways that we can look at this. First, we can see Luke is, in a sense, contrasting Jesus's authoritative proclamation with what the rabbis would have done in Jesus's day. The rabbis would have said, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so says this, and Rabbi so-and-so says this about Isaiah, but don't forget Rabbi so-and-so, and they would set out for the people a smorgasbord of interpretive options, and they would essentially say, pick what you want. They were good postmoderns. Pick what you want. Which interpretation fits you? Which one do you like? That's essentially what the people were used to. And here is Jesus, and he is preaching with divine authority, and he is demanding a response to what he is saying about himself from the people, and they've never seen or heard anything like this. Now, behind that, I think, is the contrast between Jesus as the divine prophet of the church, and all the other prophets of the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets spoke God's word authoritatively. They said, thus says the Lord. Um, I read as a very young Christian in one of Jonathan Edwards' miscellanies this thought, and, and it's so simple and it's just so profound. He said, you know, all the other prophets spoke God's word and they said, thus says the Lord. Jesus came and he said, truly I say to you, Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. He is the Lord. He said, truly I say to you. He is God prophesying of himself, about himself to his people. He spoke with a divine authority. And there was a power. People's lives were changed. Just like if you're a Christian, your life has been changed. There is a power in Christ's word. There is a power that reaches into the very depths of the souls of his people and does what nothing else can do. Um, People's lives are not transformed unless they're transformed by the powerful word of Jesus Christ. His preaching had efficacy to it. It came with a divine efficacy that convicted men of sin, that showed men their need for uh, the grace of God and atonement and satisfaction and that, that they could be safe in a representative. Here, here's the second Adam and he's coming with all of that divine word. Now here's the amazing thing. Right before this and right before his time in Nazareth, remember Jesus is in uh, the wilderness being tempted by the devil. And what does he do? He appeals to the authority of God's word as over against the authority of the devil's word. So in the wilderness, facing off against the prince of darkness grim, Jesus is appealing and he is overcoming by saying this, this counterfeit authority that Satan has and says, and by the way, All you have to do is open a magazine, turn on the news, scroll through your Facebook feed, and everyone is giving you a faux authority. And they're telling you what is real and true and right and what you need to believe. 
And, and God's word comes with a, a power and an authority that, that blows all of the smoke away so that you can see how false and fake and untrue it all is. Um, I met someone the other day who was telling me why they're not a Christian. And I said to them, you know, you know, do you read the Bible? And they said, no, not really. <laughs> There's a reason why people don't read the Bible. Uh, the Bible comes with the divine uh, voice of God. The infinite God speaks when scripture is read. The infinite God is speaking when his word is preached. Uh, the writer of Hebrews can't even explain it, except he says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit. I don't even know where that division is. <laughs> Joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That it goes to the, the, the very inner depth of our being, and it reaches into places scientists and doctors could never find. And when Jesus comes, all of that power is manifest. Here is the King of kings and the Lord of lords speaking, as it were, from himself on behalf of his Father, and the people are astonished. Now, I think in one sense, we who are accustomed to sitting under the ministry of the word, listening to sermons, listening to ministers that we like to listen to, we lose something of the astonishment of that. One of you said to me the other day, and I, I greatly appreciated this, someone in our congregation said, you know, the other day while you were reading the word before the sermon, I think God spoke to me more than he's spoken to me anywhere else, just in the reading of his word. Um, that's, that's what it's supposed to do. That's what God wants to do for his people as his word is read. This is how the Apostle Paul can say through the preaching of the word, it is the very wisdom and power of God unto salvation. The preaching of Christ crucified is power. There is real divine power in it. And we lose something. Um, we almost, uh, and the Corinthians became this, didn't they? That's where the Apostle Paul says that. They became what theologians have said are, are sermon tasters. They just allowed it to kind of just sit in their heads. It didn't really uh, move into their hearts. It didn't convict them of their sins. It didn't do what God intends to do in the lives of his people. But notice, secondly, um, as Jesus is preaching in the synagogue and he is interrupted, no sooner is he um, finished preaching this first part of his message, verse 33, Luke says, in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Um, When Jesus enters a church, uh, the, the thoughts of men's hearts and the powers of darkness are often let loose. This is why Luther wrote what he wrote. This is why Luther was so keenly aware. Here, Jesus has come to the church. When Jesus is, if, if there's no true gospel in a church, Satan doesn't care. You know, um, A.W. Pink said that we like to think of uh, Satan's ministers as bartenders. But, but he said they're, they're more like finely clothed ministers. 
I better get some cheaper clothes. <laughs> um, Paul says that, doesn't he? That Satan's ministers pose as angels of light. But here when Jesus comes, it elicits, it demands a response. When Jesus is presented before people, it is impossible not to respond. And here it draws out this man who has been possessed with an unclean spirit. And, and Luke tells us that no sooner has he seen Jesus, and we have no idea whether this man has ever spoken, why he's in the synagogue, how this is happening. We know that, that as it were, when Christ comes, all the forces of darkness are let loose in a concentrated sense. That's why there's so much demon possession in the Bible and why we see so little of it in our day. Um, I don't want to get into whether people can still be possessed by demons or not, uh, but I do think it's important for us to understand there is a concentration. This is in the church because the Messiah has come, because the gospel is here. Jesus and the apostles, are the, the kingdom is breaking into time and space in a way it never did before. And, and that conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent begun in the wilderness is carried on now. Now, here's what's amazing. In the temptation account, um, in a sense, Jesus is being passively attacked, though it is the spirit who led him into the wilderness um, to be tempted. But there is, a, there is a sense in which Jesus is on the defense in the temptation account. But here, Jesus is on the offense. Um, he is not passively sitting back waiting, he is disarming principalities and powers. That's why the Son of God came into the world. John says to destroy the works of the evil one. So he is, he is now binding the strong man. He is, he is entering the strong man's house so that he can deliver captives because that's what Jesus came to do. Now, there are loads of questions this opens for us. Um, one of those questions that you may have is how much do we attribute to Satan? I mean, here's this man, he's demon-possessed. He, he is, uh, as it were, so possessed by demons, more than one demon, that they are speaking in plurals and singulars. There's confusion. Is the man speaking? Are the demons speaking? Um, that, that's, that's one question we have. We know very little about demon possession, even from what we know. But, but here this man's life has been, in a sense, possessed by these demons. And it's very interesting that um, what these demons do is they speak. You know, William Still, the great Scottish theologian, made the observation that there is a contrast between unclean spirits and the Holy Spirit. And when unclean spirits possess this man, they cry out, they can't keep quiet. And when the Holy Spirit fills the heart of a believer, they speak about Christ. Very interesting. Um, notice that Luke tells us that they essentially say, you know, what are you going to do with us? They're, they're a little bit like a man who's just been arrested and saying to the officer, you know, let me go, let me go, <laughs> let me go. They, they know who Jesus is. Very interesting, the people in Nazareth didn't know who Jesus was, but the demons do. That's a rebuke. James will pick up on that and say, you believe in God? Good. Even the demons believe and tremble. Good. Good for you. You believe in God. Good. Super convicting, by the way. The demons know exactly who Jesus is. Um, many of the people in the church in Jesus' day didn't know who he was. Now that shows, in part, 
how far-reaching the sway of the evil one is over men. Some of you may be thinking, well, the evil one doesn't have sway over me. Well, that's actually proof that he does, because you're in the darkness and you can't see what the light reveals and says. Um, It's the tragic state of affairs that the evil one um, from our first parents has brought this world into a state of sin and misery. Um, Notice that Luke highlights something very interesting, and it it happens twice. Um, It happens twice, three times, I'm sorry, in this passage. Notice that in verse 35, Luke says, Jesus rebuked him. Now, Jesus is also going to rebuke a fever in the next account, and then he's going to rebuke demons who are possessing other people in the next account. So Luke is fixating on what Jesus is doing with his word. How much power, how much power does Jesus have? You know, I, I sometimes think that the, the greatest proof that we don't believe in the power of Jesus' word is how medicated we are in our society. I'm not... I'm not trying to get into a debate about chemical imbalances. Um, The fact that people run to money and medicine to try to heal their hearts shows that we don't believe in the power of Jesus' word. I think Martin Luther really believed one little word would fell the devil. I think he really believed that. I think he knew the power of Christ's word. Here, this man, for however long he's been demon-possessed, is, is so overcome um, with agony. Um, notice that Jesus comes to set this man free. Verse 35, Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, that just shows that um, unclean spirits so hate men, they would, they would hurt them as it were. Threw him down in the midst. Notice that he came out of him having done him no harm. Now, um, Why did Jesus heal this man? He didn't ask to be healed. Um, I've always found it interesting that there are a number of people in the Gospels who are not looking to be healed, and that's precisely when Jesus heals them. He's not crying out, have mercy on me like so many sick were. He's 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 not coming to the Savior and saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. He is a picture, as it were. This is what our lives are. This is us. Now, I sometimes try to think about people I know, and I try to, I try to imagine what their private lives are like, because I know what mine is like. And, and I usually conclude that, that it's so much worse than I would think it is, because I know mine is so much worse than I wished it was by nature. Um... Jesus knows how bad we are. Jesus knows how helpless we are. Jesus knows how unclean we are. Jesus knows how under the dominion of the evil one we are by nature. Jesus knows how much we love the world. Jesus knows how much we love the passing pleasures of sin. Jesus knows how much we love unclean things. Jesus knows 
the bondage that we feel by nature, Jesus knows the guilt that we feel, Jesus knows when we're feeling accused by the evil one, he knows it all, and he came into this world to deliver his people. The coming of the kingdom, the casting out of the unclean demons, Jesus is showing that he cares supremely for people who cannot fix themselves, cannot help themselves, are beyond the hope of any remedy, any medicine, any financial support, fixing, problem-solving, counseling, psychology. Jesus knows that he alone, by one word, can rebuke whatever is, is possessing us, oppressing us, accusing us, enslaving us. That's supremely important because if you're here this morning and, and you're like me and there are things in your life and you think, I just wish I wouldn't do this anymore. I wish I wouldn't gossip. I wish I wouldn't slander. I wish I wouldn't be so greedy. I wish I wouldn't be so lustful. I wish I wouldn't be so angry. I wish I would care about people. I wish I wasn't, I wish I was more generous. And, and the word comes to us and, and Jesus says, look, I, I've come into this world to heal my people. And I've come to set my people free. Remember, he's the one in Nazareth proclaiming that the acceptable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, the year when debts are canceled and, and, and prisoners are set free had come. That's what he came to do. He is exhibiting now in this synagogue what he came into the world to do. And I'll tell you this this morning. I know this. I don't need to know anything about your private life to know that what you need more than anything is a clear sight of how powerful Jesus' word is. I do know that. I do know that. I know that I have no greater need than to be stirred up with confidence that all the Son of God has to do is speak a word. Remember that account of the centurion? He had that faith, didn't he? This is not, by the way, health, wealth, prosperity, word of faith nonsense. That's not biblical. Um, but that, that, that soldier um, who had the sick servant that he cared for so dearly and he sent men uh sent servants to jesus and he he said to them you know tell the master i'm not even worthy for him to come under my roof just speak a word and my servant will be healed you know i've always thought this is interesting the word of faith false gospel says you got to name it and claim it speak a word it's yours the bible says jesus has to speak a word it's yours jesus sovereignly rebukes the unclean spirit and instantly that man is healed and unharmed um that's another thing that's always astonished me the gadarene demoniac who had a legion of demons in him who was cutting himself naked living among the dead the crazy guy nobody would go near because he broke the chains and out in (laughs) out living in the tombs and and the account luke's going to give us this in a couple chapters the account has him so absolutely possessed and his life so wrecked and as soon as he meets Jesus and Jesus commands the unclean spirits to come out of him the people from the city come and they find him sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind it's like the most beautiful description of conversion ever naked bleeding cutting himself oppressed sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind he didn't need 20 years of counseling. He didn't. When Jesus comes and speaks a word of gracious power into our lives, our lives are changed. Now, 
There are more questions you may have. The people are now marveling. It went from the authority and the preaching. Think about this. They were, they were amazed at the preaching. Now they're amazed that he can cast out demons with a word. And, and they're going to be even more amazed because he's going to heal people with a word. Now, here's one of those sticky questions. Luke seems to bundle together here. Jesus is preaching with power, his casting out demons with power, and his healing of sick people with power. Is Luke teaching us that if you're sick... That is because you have a demon. No. Is Luke teaching us that all sickness is in some sense a result of the evil one leading our first parents into rebellion against God and a way he manifests his hatred on men? Yes. Yes. He is teaching that. He is saying that all sickness, just like all sin, is directly related to Satan leading our first parents into rebellion against God. And in that sense, there is this intimate connection in the Gospels between Jesus healing people who were demon-possessed or healing them the same way that he healed demon-possessed people. Notice, Luke gives us now this account in verse 38. Jesus arose, he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon, this is Peter, obviously. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. They appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her, and he rebuked the fever. It's the same word that he used when he rebuked the unclean spirit. Jesus now rebukes sickness. If you're not astonished by this, there's something terribly wrong, by the way. I mean that. Like, if if you find this boring, wow, my heart is heavy for you because that's astonishing. Jesus, his word has power. He has a powerful word over demon possession. He can rebuke a fever and it go away. And notice notice how completely he makes her well. Notice this. Remember, Luke's a doctor. So Luke's taking all the details in. And notice what Luke says. He says, immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now think about this. You You get sick. You take some antibiotics. You start feeling better, but you're real sluggish. You got to sleep a lot more. You're tired. And you kind of slowly mend. (laughs) Jesus heals this woman. She has a fever, high fever. She gets up and she starts serving them. That's how perfectly Jesus' powerful word heals those who need healing. Now, more people are brought to him. He heals them. He lays hands on them. He casts demons out. He rebukes demons. He is Lord over everything. He is Lord over everything. He has power over everything. Now, I'm going to say two things here. First, I'm going to say, if there is any area of your life or your life as a whole in which you feel as though you are in bondage, helpless, um, everything's outside of your control, you can't fix your situation, um, you need the powerful word of Christ. You need to go to him and you need to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You need to be able to say, Lord, speak a word. And you can make this better. He's the same Christ. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Same Jesus. Um, My car almost broke down this week. I freaked out. I had a moment of anxiety. I called a bunch of friends to help me find a new car. I didn't stop and pray once. I freaked out over something as insignificant as a car breaking down. (laughs) 
Now, we have much bigger problems than cars breaking down. We have a whole lot of sin problems, and we have a mighty Savior who speaks a word because he goes to the cross, and he lays down his life, and he sheds his blood, and he takes all the sin on himself. You know, at the end of the day, Jesus' word only has power because of the power of the cross, because he goes to the cross. He stands in our place. Our person is united to him. He takes the wrath of God. He takes the judgment. He takes the punishment. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, there is no greater word of power than to hear the Son of God crying out in dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that I can know that God will never leave me nor forsake me. There's no greater place of power than hearing the Son of God cry out on the cross, it is finished. There is no greater word of power than hearing Jesus cry out at the end of his suffering, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, and to know that we are safe in the hands of the Father as he represents us. There is no greater word of power than to hear the Son of God cry out, I thirst so that you don't thirst forever in hell. There's no greater word of power than what Jesus speaks because of what Jesus does. But I want to say this secondly. There is something unique about what Jesus does here. This is not an everyday occurrence. Um, this, is not, this is not something. There are these churches that will tell you if you come into their 24-hour prayer rooms, you will see these sort of things. They take over big cities in Northern California. Um, <laughs> you can look that one up. Um, that is not why this is in the Bible. This is here at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to show us that the kingdom of God had come with power, that this is the Christ, that this is the one in whom we, we are to trust. This is all pointing. They are all signs indicating that his powerful word is showing who he is so that you will trust him safely, so that when you feel the onslaughts of the evil one, you will be able to say with Martin Luther, we're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing, the Lord of Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. And with regard to the evil one and your sin and all the needs of your life, all the sickness, all the worries, all the fears, all the enslavement, all the bondage, with Luther we ought to be able to say, one little word will fell the prince of darkness grim. Now, I don't know about you, but I just preached to myself, and, um, and I need a new sight of Christ every day of my life, because our lives show that we really don't know who he is as we ought to know, and we really don't know how much power he has, and our lack of trusting him shows it, our lives show it, maybe you saying, I'm not under the sway of the evil one, that certainly shows it. Um, but even for Christians, maybe you've been a Christian 20, 30 years, and you feel like you've been enslaved by some particular sin. I know there are times when I feel that. We need this Christ, and we need to be confident that there's power in his word, in his person, in his gospel, in the preaching of him, and that we are to look to that Christ and to know that all the power of God is invested in him for us, and that he wants to exhibit it in your life. And that may be the hardest thing to believe. I'm going to close with that. I actually think two of the hardest things to believe is that God loves me, a sinner like me, 
That's hard for me. It may not be hard for you. It's hard when you know how sinful you are. And that Jesus wants to exhibit that power in my life in every way where I need it. I hope that you will cling fast to those things, that you will cling fast to this Christ, that you will be confident, that you will pray that God gives you the same confidence that Luther had. You know, Luther was a man with a nature like ours. He was a lot crasser than you probably. (laughs) Uh, He said a lot of foolish things, but God turned the world upside down because he had confidence in this Christ. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would make your power known to us in the ways in which you did in the days of your flesh in the synagogue, and we pray that you would give us confidence to see afresh just how powerful you are and just how much uh, infinite power is, uh, is yours by virtue of your divine nature, by virtue of what you accomplished on the cross, by virtue of the fact that all authority and power in heaven and earth have been given to you. We pray that we would know that power both for our salvation and for our lives. We pray that you would speak a new word of power to us this morning. We pray these things in your name. Amen.